Good morning. Good to see you. If you're a first-time guest, my name is John. I'm one of the pastors who serves here. And I got an announcement at the end. Someone don't let me forget. If I just say see you later, I've made a mistake. So I <clears throat> just want to make sure I don't forget something. Um, if those of you who have been coming for a while, you know we've been traveling through the Bible. We took uh, some time actually back last May or uh, late April. We uh, started a 66-week journey. We gave aside one week, essentially, for each book of the Bible. We said we're going to, over the course of 66 weeks, we're going to, on Sundays, walk through the story of Scripture, step by step, kind of divide the story of, of God into 66 parts and journey through it. And then throughout the week, you've been invited to sort of read along uh, in the 66 snippets. We're just over halfway today, so this is, uh, last Sunday was the halfway mark on our, our journey. Um, we timed the whole thing to be at the resurrection of Christ on Easter, which is pretty cool, except it puts us in the prophets for Christmas. And uh, you can't have everything. Um, but uh, so today we're working through a series of the prophets. And last week we said, hey, the prophets aren't their own epic. The prophets overlap the story of God they enter in during the kings and the exile and the return as an overlapping voice. You might say an extra measure of, of grace and mercy from God to try to offer direction for the people. And we're going to take about four, four more weeks to sort of walk through, what, you know, how do we understand the prophets? Because I'm almost certain that if you set out to read the Bible, uh, the prophets are the biggest test to reading uh, for most people, is you know, how do I read this? What do I do with it? Where does it live? How does it help? And so that's really what these five or so weeks are set aside for. When you read the prophets, uh, it can feel like a difficult read. It can feel harsh, a lot of harsh content, a lot of uh, times that feel uh, more like wrath than salvation, a lot of judgment. You might even say, Hopelessness. Now, that's not entirely true. There's very bright spots in the prophets with tremendous amount of hope. In fact, nearly all of the references we have for the Messiah in the Old Testament come from the prophets. So the best part, the things that are with bated breath waiting for our Lord to come are out of the mouth of the prophets. What I've done is I've decided I'm going to push those things to next week so that for Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, we sort of sit in this prophetic hope. Um, but that, that has an interesting effect on this Sunday. If you take all the hope of the prophets and punt it to next Sunday, what do you think we're getting today? And so today's going to feel, we're going to look at intentionally some of the roughest sort of expressions. We're going to say, let's look at the rough side of the prophetic word, of which there's quite a bit, and uh, let's try to make usefulness to it. If you feel this morning like we're bending away from the good news, you know, if you're saying like, where is the good news here? Um, I, want to, I want to challenge you with a question. I want to challenge you to find the good news because it's there. It's there. And I don't mean that you need to listen up to hear a specific word this is not a where's Waldo sort of morning. The good news exists today in your perspective. 
How do you choose to view what's happening? And I think it's a great overarching question. Uh, if I was thinking, if I wasn't the talker, but the listener, um, how, do I, how do I view this morning's uh, text in a way that actually seems to suggest good news? Uh, I think that would be good work. All right, let's start with an idea. Why would someone shout at you? Some of us have a lot of experience being shouted at or shouting. Someone might shout at you to protect you from danger. Bridges out. But they would say it loud. For my own, care for my own voice, I'm not going to do that much shouting today. You know, don't go there. Don't touch the stove. Someone might shout at you to shout over other background noise. Have you ever been in a sports bar? You're just trying to have a conversation or a dinner party and it's like loud, cafeteria. And you just want someone to pass you the salt. You could be like, I said, can you pass me the salt? You're shouting. You're not mad. You just want salt. You could shout because someone is hard of hearing. Um, If you hang around in our church long enough, you'll find one of those examples. Uh, where you're talking about something and they make a remark that's totally off topic and you're like, what's going on? They're not filled with the Spirit. They just don't know what you said. (laughs) And sometimes, to be clear, you have to sort of, would you like the salt? You're not mad at them. They just can't hear that well. Sometimes we shout because we're frustrated. Anyone here who's a parent or child has been a child at some point in their life, understands this, because someone was frustrated with you. Emotions cause us to shout. When we shout in written form, we use exclamation marks, we use all caps, you bold it, you underline it, and you say things. Typically, we start to use superlatives. You never, ever do this, always, ever. You know, you, you start to use bombastic language. That's the way we shout in words. Very often when a person's getting shouted at, they don't initially know why they're getting shouted at. This is an interesting reality. When someone starts to shout at you, usually you're not exactly, you're kind of surprised into the shout fest. And it often causes frustration of your own part. Like, what are you yelling at me for? Even when someone's trying to save you, like, there's a deer. We're driving, my wife does this to me. Like, we're driving. Blah! It happens, you know, and I'm not swerving for a squirrel, okay? I'm not. There is a big food chain, and they are way down there. <laughs> squirrel! You know, my hand does not move off the wheel, or it's moving. But she'll shout, and I'll get angry. What are you doing? Sometimes our reaction to the initial shout is a little bit surprised, and we get defensive. You know, I will, uh, I'll be downstairs, Andrew will be upstairs, she'll vacuum me, you know, buzzer will go off in the oven. I'll go to the bottom of the stairs, because it's so hard to walk up the stairs, and I'll shout up the stairs, hey, honey, the buzzer's going on, and she won't stop, so then I'll do it a little louder. I'm just saying familiar things that I think you'll, and you typically, on shout number two, you use less words. Honey, the buzzer, she doesn't hear, 
And then right as she's wondering to herself, I imagine, did I just hear something? She's turning off the vacuum cleaner. I just shout, Andrea! <laughs> to which I get, what? What are you shouting at me for? You, you see how that, I just want us to say, when, I want us to appreciate when we're yelled at, a lot of times we're not natural good listeners immediately. We just hear people yelling at us. Generally speaking, you can't always yell. Otherwise, you'll turn people off. And they'll, they'll leave your life. They'll put you at a distance. If you're just a yeller, expect your children to move very far away. It's just, if you're just yelling at everything, who wants to be around that? Who wants to be around that kind of boss, that kind of teacher, that kind of coach? Uh, so, you get, generally speaking, I'm going to help us think through this, but generally speaking, you can't just always yell. That being said, it's worth asking, and this is a second sort of traveling question this morning, what might be an occasion, in light of that, since we all know it, what might be an occasion where you would not stop yelling? Because the prophets sound like they're constantly yelling. I think that's one of the reasons we don't like them. Is in the, they yell in written form, so you, know, you can't hear it, but you can read it. They say words that are yelly words like, whoa, I don't mean like a horse, I mean like, woe is me. Sometimes they repeat words, that's how you yell in Hebrew, that's a Hebrew exclamation point, whoa, 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 that's louder, okay? They'll name call, Israel has whored like a prostitute, that's yelling. They'll use theatrics. We'll see some of that today. And then they'll say it. Why must we yell at you? <laughs> they'll just tell you in writing that they're yelling, okay? So there's a lot of yelling in the prophets, page after page, warnings, woes, judgments, so much so that the prophets almost always sound like this. It's just the whole thing is like, and a reader who doesn't understand can want to put this enough, why are you yelling at me? Like, that's, I think that's one of the reasons people don't necessarily hold hands well with the prophets is we don't know what to do with all the yelling. You know, I, I had the great blessing, as many of you have had, of at some points in my life sharing a wall of my house with another home in a duplex. In fact, I've shared two walls in government housing. So you can imagine how thick they were. Okay, so many, many times we were invited into the sounds of other people yelling. Sometimes the prophets can feel like that old couple on the other side of the wall yelling. What do they yell about, right? And it can sound like, a, you know, it's a different culture. It's, it's, it's not your argument. It's just a different language, a different culture. Constantly through the wall, like enough already. It shouldn't be that way with the prophets, but I think it is for some of us. And today, what I want, us to, I want to do a little bit is to at least begin to appreciate why all of the yelling. If, I think if we could hold on to that, I think we could appreciate the words of the prophets in our own life. So with that said, we're going to look in Jeremiah. He does a lot of it, a lot of yelling. 
Jeremiah chapter 20. Jeremiah is the largest book of the Bible. I don't know if you knew that. You probably thought Psalms was. Psalms is longer because it's formatted differently, but word count wise, Jeremiah wins. The yelliest book in the Bible is the biggest. And then he's got all these other friends who yell with him, like Ezekiel and Haggai, Zechariah, right? Jeremiah 20. I'm going to read two verses, verses 7 and 8. Now, I thought it would be helpful for us to start with Jeremiah, not yelling at us. He's going to start by yelling at God. But with a, uh, so this is a, a very confessional moment. I just say this is one of these moments like the psalmist where we're reminded, uh, as long as we turn to the Lord with all of who we are, it's amazing what he allows us to turn in him with. Okay? I mean, this, we're not going to read all of this, but Jeremiah is going to say to the Lord, I wish I had been aborted. Why, why were you not that merciful to me? Right? So here's, uh, here's what verses 7 and 8 say. O Lord, you have deceived me, and I was deceived. You are stronger than I, and, I, and you have prevailed. I have become a laughing stock all the day. Everyone mocks me. For whenever I speak, I cry out. I shout violence and destruction. For the word of the Lord has become for me a reproach and derision all day long. It's pretty raw. This is, what, this is how you might paraphrase verse 7 and 8. Jeremiah says, God, you have ruined my life. You've ruined it. You tricked me. I thought I was being called into your service, and you have destroyed my life. That's what Jeremiah is saying. I'm alone, and I'm despised because of you, God. Whenever I open my mouth, anytime I open my mouth, I say violence and destruction. I can't just talk to somebody. Anytime I'm talking to somebody, next thing you know, I'm talking about the violence and the destruction. I, I like to imagine uh, what Jeremiah would be like at your Thanksgiving dinner table. You know, Jeremiah, would you like mashed potatoes? You're going to be mashed like a potato because of the violence and the destruction. Would you, what about the gravy? I, you will be poured out like gravy over the land because of the violence and the destruction. I think he's the reason we were taught not to talk about religion at the Thanksgiving dinner table was because someone had Jeremiah over to dinner. That's what he's saying. He's saying, doesn't matter what it is. Everywhere I go, every subject that comes up, whenever I'm with people, I'm on the elevator talking about violence and destruction. He's saying, Lord, you have systematically ruined my life. Good job, God. You got me. That's how this word of the Lord starts. Remember that question? Is there ever an occasion that you can imagine where you would not stop yelling? Think about that. That's what he's saying. He's saying, I have lost the ability to not yell. 
Here's the next verse, 9. If I say, I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I'm weary with holding it in, and I cannot. You see that? I can't do it. I can't not do it. If I try not to do it, I will burn down on the inside. That's what he says. In the scriptures, with the prophets, oftentimes you'll, you'll, it'll start like this. Uh, and the word of the Lord came to so-and-so, and he said. Or uh, Ezekiel might say, I saw a vision. There'll be this, uh, this visionary phrase. I mean, it'll, you'll have lots of things. Like, and the Lord said, say this. So there'll be simple ways. But very, very often, there's a, a notion of sort of an experience coming to the prophet, and then he, his prophetic word to the people is simply him rehashing what he experienced. I think that's a helpful way to think about the, the why do the prophets sound the way they do. They don't simply sound the way they do because God said to them, I want to go to the people and I want you to say this. Say it kind of loud. Think of it rather that they've experienced something and they're reacting out of their experience. This is how Ezekiel would say it in Ezekiel 33. Ezekiel would describe it as a good prophet is a watchman, like a watchman on the wall of a city. Okay, And he would say, a good watchman warns the people of what he sees. This is the phrase, this is Ezekiel 33, 3. He would say that a prophet who, quote, sees the sword coming upon the land and blows the trumpet and warns the people. You see that? That's yelling, blowing the trumpet, warning the people. How would you imagine a prophet or a watchman staring out on the horizon and seeing this invading army crusting the, the, the horizon, the dust rising off the ground, what would you do if you were a good watchman? You would blow the horn with all your might and you'd shout to arms with everything you had. You see, the picture there is helpful. What Ezekiel's bringing us into is kind of the nature of the prophet. The prophet's not just being told what to say. The prophet is being shown, shown God's reality, and then they're being set loose on the people. They're reacting what the people get from Jeremiah and Ezekiel and these others. What they're getting is someone who has seen a reality coming, seen a picture, experienced God's feelings and his mind on things as being invited into a place, not their own, and then being thrust upon the people. That's the nature of the prophet. That's why they're shouting. They feel the way God feels, and then they're loosed on the people. If after this church service, you go to the bathroom and you, you push the door open and there's a grizzly bear on two hind feet, you know, doing that grizzly thing. He does that. You first thing you're going to do is you're going to try to close the door, but I checked, they don't have handles on the outside. So we don't have bear design doors. I found that out this morning. Our next building program will take care of that. 
But so you'll step back and the door will close. And bears are not good at opening doors, so you're probably going to be okay. But you will then turn, and since it's post-first service, there'll be a line of people behind you coming to the bathroom. You'll turn, and what will you do? Will you be like, oh, excuse me, right ahead. <laughs> right ahead, you know. Is, you're, no, you're not going to do that. You, are you going to go, hey, there's a bear. I, it's church, I don't want to yell. No, you're going to naturally do this, something like this, and yell, there's a you're going to yell and sound like an idiot. There's a grizzly bear in the bathroom, right? You're going to say, and people are going to be like, what are you yelling about, right? They're going to have that first reaction to yelling. It doesn't matter. Like, some might think you're joking. What are you going to do if they think you're joking? You're going to, you're going to start being theatrical about it. I am serious. There's literally, top of your lungs, okay? You're simply reacting to a reality that you were invited into. That's the prophet's. Okay? They're not inventing, this is not fake anger. This is their response to what they've experienced. All right, uh, one more verse here, and then we'll look at an example. Verse 10. For I hear many whispering, terror is on every side. Denounce him. Let us denounce him, say all my close friends, watching for my fall. Perhaps he will be deceived. Then we can overcome him and take our revenge on him. Those are Jeremiah's friends talking. Jeremiah is saying to the Lord, I have become estranged and despised from my very people because of the word that I say. Because they won't or can't, they can't or won't accept the reality I'm shouting at the top of my lungs day after day. They refuse or are unable to accept the reality that I'm trying to put in front of them. And it's making me utterly despised, utterly despised. I'm saying the reality that is coming and they either can't or won't hear what I'm saying and they hate me because of it. I'm going to read you the first verse of this chapter. In a moment, we're going to look at an example in Jeremiah 19, okay? So we're going to look at a, a kind of a word that he proclaims to the people. Um, after he's done, actually 20 verse 1, so right here in the same chapter, is the reaction. So he's done saying, shouting what he was told or experienced. And here's what we see in Jeremiah 20 verse 1. Now Pasher, the priest, the son of Emer, who was the chief officer in the house of the Lord, heard Jeremiah prophesying these things. Then Pasher beat Jeremiah the prophet and put him in stocks. See that? What's the reward for faithful shouting? The priest, son of the chief of the priest officers, this is not a nobody, says, seize that man, beat him, shame him in front of the people in stocks by the gate all day. This is Jeremiah. Actually, maybe this is why Jeremiah says what he does in verse 7. Thanks, Lord. Appreciated that. It's the life of Jeremiah. This is, I just want us to see he's not deciding to shout. He's not an obnoxious person. He's not an angry person. He's experiencing a reality that he can't not say. Can you imagine? Is there any reason why you would shout and not stop shouting? That's what Jeremiah is saying. 
I can't stop. If I do, I burn down on the inside. But when I do shout, no one understands what I'm saying, and they hate me because of it. Thank you, Lord. Let's look at an example. Uh, we won't spend long here. The example's a graphic example. Um, I mean, Judah is at the end of their history. They're about to be destroyed. That Jeremiah is prophesying at the end of their history. Incidentally, we, the church history believes he was eventually sawn in two by his people. They got so tired of hearing him. Um, here is, uh, I'll pick up in verse three, but a little bit of background. The Lord says to him, hey, get a, get a clay pot, a clay flask, a pottery, and you can grab the elders of the people and the elders of the priest, go to this gate that looks down on the valley of the son of Hinnon, okay? And then, uh, so get in the right scenery in the right venue so that they'll understand what I'm about to say. And then, I, then I'm gonna let you loose. <clears throat> and here's what he says, verse three. You shall say, that's the Lord, hear the word of the Lord, O kings. And I'm not gonna shout because my voice. O kings of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I am bringing such disaster upon this place that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. Because the people have forsaken me and profaned this place by making offerings in it to other gods whom neither they nor their fathers nor the kings of Judah have known and have become filled and have filled this place with the blood of innocence. And they have built the high places of Baal to burn their sons in the fire as burnt offerings to Baal, which I did not command or decree, nor did it come to my mind. Therefore, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when this place shall no more be called Topheth, or the valley of the son of Hinnon, but the valley of slaughter. And in this place, I will make void the plans of Judah and Jerusalem and will cause their people to fall by the sword before their enemies and by the hand of those who seek their life. I will give their dead bodies for food to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the earth and I will make this city a horror, a thing to be hissed at. Everyone who passes by it will be horrified and will hiss because of all its wounds and I will make them eat the flesh of their sons and their daughters. And everyone shall eat the flesh of his neighbor in the siege and in the distress with which their enemies and those who seek their life afflict them. That's the sort of thing Jeremiah would say. Now that's rough. And we know he's yelling, right? He's yelling words here, disaster, void, horror, Hissing. I think that might be the only time hissing shows up in the Bible. I have to check. I just can't remember ever seeing it anywhere else. Utter catastrophe is in store. Utter catastrophe. You cannot or should not be able to imagine a worse reality than this. You're going to be slaughtered. Those of you who live for a while are going to be besieged in such a terrible way that you're going to do things, things you cannot imagine you would do. And this is going to be your reality because you have done things that you should never have imagined to do against me. And you've done them to innocent young children. And you've done them in the face of God. Under the banner of God's people, you have done the most atrocious things. And so it will be dealt on you. That's what he's saying. 
And then he's going to add some theatrics to it. Look at verse 15. Oh, I'm sorry, verse, uh, verse 10. Then you shall break the flask in the sight of the men who go with you. And you shall say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, so will I break this people and this city as one breaks a potter's vessel so it can never be mended. Men shall bury in Topheth because there will be no place else to bury. Let me just say a word about Topheth. It's this, so they're staring down into this valley of the son of Hanon, okay? And they're, he's staring down there because there was this high place in this valley called Topheth, which is where a tremendous amount of this idolatry took place, okay? So they had begun to revere as a sacred place to the other gods like Baal, this place called Topheth in the valley, okay? So he's desecrating it. Just anecdotally, this valley of the son of Hanan, the word valley of the son of Hanan is going to get abridged over time. It's going to be mishmashed so that by the time you get to the New Testament, it will be called Gehenna. Gehenon. Okay? That is it. And by the time you get to the time of Christ, this valley of the son of Hanan where there's these high places is going to be a trash heap, a burning trash heap that the Lord will use in his parables to describe hell. In fact, in your Bible, you will get to the Greek word Gehenna and sometimes it will simply be translated hell. That is the very thing that Jeremiah is prophesying about. That's what he's saying. He's saying, this place that you honored to these other gods are gonna, is going to turn into your own graveyard where the fire is never quenched. You remember this passage from Scripture? And the worm never dies. Gehenna. Verse 13 the houses of Jerusalem and the houses of the kings of Judah and all the houses on whose roofs offerings have been offered to all the hosts of heaven and drink offerings have been poured out to the other gods shall be defiled like the place of Topheth. Now all of that said, I want you to hear why the Lord has Jeremiah say this. Verse 15, it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I'm bringing upon this city and upon all its towns the disaster that I have pronounced against it. Why? Because they have stiffened their neck, refusing to hear my words. So this is a good example of the kind of yelling, prophetic yelling that's taking place, not just here, but elsewhere in the prophets. For which right, the prophets are experiencing God's reality then they're echoing it to the people, right? They're being loosed upon the people. The people don't want to hear it, and so they're rejecting the prophets. Who wants to be yelled at all the time? I think that's a fairly decent setting just to make, uh, I want to make three, I think, observations about the prophets. Some of these things that you can see here um, all of these things are all over the prophetic word. Um, but, uh, so you might just see tiny scratches of it here, but these are some things that I, would, I think are important to appreciate about the message of the prophets. And the first one deals with this ability or willingness to hear. Like you have this sense of if, if they can't hear the word of the Lord, why are they being judged so sternly? You ever wonder about that? You know, there's the, 
He who has an ear, let him hear throughout the prophets. You even have this, they've stiffened their neck and they, can't, they refuse to hear. In other places, he says they're blind guides or they can't see or they can't hear. And at some point, whether you ask it formally in the prophets, you will say it about yourself. If I don't know, why am I to blame? If I don't know, why am I, if I can't hear? Like why? If they... They're doing things, even if they're doing wicked things that they don't, and they don't understand, why are they being judged? I'll phrase it this, this way, just to make it a very pointed question. Am I culpable for that which I cannot hear? The answer of the Lord is, yes, you are culpable. You are responsible to see and embrace the truth of God. Okay, this is one of the, now, I know this doesn't sit well with everybody. Uh, like, welcome to the prophets. This is, it, the hardest truths are the ones that they really try to drill out. You are responsible for the truth of God. Especially if you call yourself God's people. I mean, this is the word of God being spoken to. Don't start going to what about the person in the distant land who didn't know. Let's just stay with us. Here. Your ability to see and perceive is limited by what you choose to look at. This is the heart of the prophets. They might say, you can't see because you're not staring. Your ability to see is limited by the amount of light or darkness in which you dwell. This was John 3, which was read last Sunday. The light is coming into the world, but people like the darkness. So he's saying, you, the, the, the notion all through the prophets is you can't go to the Lord at the end of the day and say, I didn't know, I didn't see, how was I supposed to, how, 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 none of that. You're responsible for all the truth of the Lord and you can't, what you are able to see has everything to do with the amount of light you allow in your life and what you, what you decide to look at. What you can hear has everything to do with what you listen for. If you surround yourself, it's like the parable of the sower. You surround yourself with a ton of other noise. How are you planning to be? How do you expect to hear the word of the Lord? If you surround yourself with a ton of other temptations, how do you expect? Now, theologically, these sound like really hard teachings. In a very remedial sense, this is middle school level parental training. This is the very thing that, like when and it's children are growing up, this is the sort of reality that we deal with when they hit middle school. It's not complicated, right? Summer reading. What does a parent say in June about summer reading? Might want to get started on summer reading. What does the child, the middle school child, middle school through junior year of college say? about summer reading. They say, I'll get to it. I'll get to it, right? I'll get to it. July, at this point, the mom can hardly stand it. So she's not only saying, you might want to get to your summer reading, but she's offering like a reading plan. Some, you're in the, heading towards the end of incentivizing, you know, maybe if you read, right? I'll get to it. I get, you get to August, August 29th, and War and Peace hasn't been cracked open yet. In the middle school, and I was one of these, okay? I think I read my first book in college. Uh, uh, you know, the, the child says, I can't do this. I can't do this. And only the worst 
parent advocates for a child now. Okay, just so you know, if you advocate for a child and that, you're a, it's bad parenting. They can't because they didn't when they could. You can't do what you must do because you didn't do what you could have done when you should have done it. This is what we're saying. When someone says, Lord, I can't do that. I don't, I'm not able to do that. The Lord would say, well, you're not able to do it because you didn't do it when you should have done it. And if you did it when you should have done it, you could have done it. You can't see me because you didn't look at me when you could have seen me. But now you've put yourself in such a dark place that you can't, you can't hear me because you've walked so far away from me that, you, that no matter how loud I, my prophets shout, it's out of the range of your earshot. Who's to blame for that? Okay, this is the situation of life in which the prophets are speaking. People who have walked, meandered, meandered willingly so far away from God that unless someone screams like a maniac, they will not hear the warning. That's the first thing to appreciate. And to act like we're not familiar with this, we all, we all have dealt with this. It's a very real human experience. Here's the second way to appreciate the ministry of the prophets. Their ministry is the ministry of trying to move the boundary lines of your conscience. That's what they're set about doing. And that is one of the most difficult tasks ever. Inside of our boundary lines of our conscience, inside of the realm of things, like inside of, inside of the realm of where you go, well, that's right and that's wrong and I do the right things, right? We all have some perimeter that defines our conscience. Inside of that perimeter, we can hear instruction, we can talk, we can deal, we, we can take counsel. Inside where our conscience is soft, soft talk works. When you hit the boundary of a person's conscience, you want to talk about a battle, Moving for, for you to uproot the tense, like the boundary marker of your conscience and step farther out and put it back down, that takes, that is, the prophets are pushing like with all their might against this, this imploding boundary line of consciousness. The people have almost no, they're burning their sons in the fire in a valley that can be seen from the gate of the temple. That's the reality. I think, and I can think back on a few, the Lord has kept my memory very alive on a few moments in my life where someone pushed against the boundary line of my conscience. And those are, from in my disappointing memory, some of the worst moments of my own behavior is how I reacted when someone wanted to call out what I was doing is wrong when I had decided it was fine. Don't tell me. That's the ministry of the prophets. They are, they are devoted to moving your boundary markers, which means they're meddling in places you think are fine. What's the big deal? We, have, we happen to have just enough time. I'm going to say this. I want us to appreciate how unique this is, by the way. Okay, this is happening 
first millennium BC. So 700 BC, 500 BC, ancient, okay? This is during the period of the ancient religions, okay? Uh, right now in, in the, uh, the Greco-Roman world, you have the stories of the pantheon and these sorts of gods and all of that, okay? I just want us to appreciate how absolutely unique our God is that he cares about our moral life. Nowhere else, nowhere else on the world is there some religion where the gods are all that interested in your moral behavior. In fact, read the stories, read the Greek myths. They, as, they misbehave every bit as much as we do. They don't care about you, how you live in your life out. Whereas the Lord, you read the prophets and the Lord, if, if the prophets are simply mirroring the heart of God, the Lord with gasping breath is saying, I don't understand how the orphans and the widows are going without. How can that happen? You see his heart? I can't believe you would carry your child into that valley. He says, like, the Lord swoons over the notion that the man in the market uses uneven balances to trade with the poor. Our God feels about small things with white hot zeal. And then he gives that to the prophets. Now go tell them. Here's the third thing that may, might help us appreciate the prophets and how to read them. The prophets speak as though we, the people, share the responsibility for the atrocities of the few among us. This bothers us so much. It bothers us so much to think, wait, the whole city's gonna perish because some people sacrificed their children? Wait a second, you're gonna judge that whole town because a person did this? The answer to the Lord is yes, he is gonna do it, okay? And why dance around this? It's so obvious in the Old Testament. The Lord holds the many responsible for the atrocities of the few. In other words, we might say few are guilty, but all are responsible. And there's not a mystery here. In the Lord's mind, he's saying, the few do this because the many allow it. Stop acting like you don't play a role. The few behave this way because the many turn their heads aside. So you read in the law, he says, if this happens in the village, you grab that person, you haul them out of the village, and you, you end it for them. That cannot remain in the village, which that sounds too hard for us. So we turn our eyes, and before we know it, many people are doing that. This is the, Lord's, the Lord appreciates how precarious our collective moral compass is. He understands us better than we understand ourselves. And so what we find is we get to a place where judgment's coming and we go, well, I didn't do that. I don't understand. Certainly there's gonna be grace and mercy, right? And all of this, certainly we have all of these provisos and quid pro quos and asterisks about our behavior being a little bit better than the other person's behavior. And the Lord's demeanor is the city is responsible for the atrocities of the few in the city because it's in the city that they grew up. It's the city that has allowed it to happen it's the city 
that has cultivated it. These are really hard truths, but they're truths. And this is what's fueling the prophetic word. So where's the good news in this? Did you find it? I think it's hiding in that question, what would make you, what would happen to you where you wouldn't stop yelling? Well, I'll start in a very, very easy way, like to the moms, older families. Is there something in your life that would happen in your life where you wouldn't stop praying every day? It's easy, right? A wayward child? Something not right in the world that's close to home? I mean, just to go from there to, you can just change the circumstances to the place of yelling, warning, right? You're someone you love who's heading down a dangerous path and, and you're warning them, but they can't hear you so because of all the noise in their own life, so then you say it a little louder, but they can't hear you because they're hard of hearing, so you say it a little louder. Like all of these things. Like why in the world is the Lord yelling so much? If he's just judgment, why not just do it? You see, the whole ministry of the prophets is a sign of love. The entire ministry, why yell? God is yelling because he loves them. He's warning them. He, 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 they can't hear because of all the other distractions, so he sends more prophets they can't hear because they've grown hard of hearing. So he sends more prophets. There's this righteous indignation in him that he's trying to express to the people. This to me is a sign of good news. This to me makes me certain that the white hot righteousness of God that can abide no evil is matched only by his love. Only by his love. Why else yell? Why else stand outside the door saying you don't have any idea what's in there? When the watchman sees what's coming, he yells. That's our hope. If God did not have the same zeal of love as he did righteousness, why not just stop? I think he's yelling to save us. All right. Let's take a time. Let's bow our heads. I think all of this message will uh, have bear some fruit. Um, if we spend a little bit of time embracing the notion that uh, we see what we choose to look at. We hear what we choose to listen to. Christian, if you have the Spirit of God in you, the, the Spirit does the work of the prophets. The Spirit is committed to moving the boundary lines of your consciousness. Just as a moment, I just, if someone needs to even respond to the Lord in that, if there's an issue, may Lord, I'm, I've been fighting, I've been 
kicking against this. I've been refusing to hear this. But today I'm willing to say this thing that I have called right is wrong. I need to call it what it is. And if that's not in your mind, pray with me. Like, Lord, may you this morning move someone's boundary line. Bring them into righteousness. And for an age of the church that has grown very accustomed to victim language, maybe this morning we can just embrace God's righteous expectation that we see his truth. For what can be known about him has been shown. It's in these things, Lord, we ask you to change us. We thank you, Lord, that you have not grown silent, that your frustration, in your frustration, you didn't want walk away from people. In fact, you have done more than yell. You have sent him. May we hear his voice. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.